that every couple has been asked this question a time or two. How did you meet? I'm going to ask that as I ask you these series of questions, that if any of them applies to you, that you would in fact raise your hand. Did any of you meet in high school? Wow, yes, wow, several of you. Did any of you meet on a blind date? Wow, okay. Did any of you meet at church? That would be the two of us, yes, and, and Kathy over there. Did any of you meet online? None. Or is there one? Yes, yes, there were, okay. Uh, did any of you meet in college? Several of you. All right. I guarantee you that none of you would raise your hands when I, when I ask you this question. Did any of you marry someone you'd never met? All right. No hands went up. And yet the couple that we are going to be dealing with this morning did exactly that. They had never met, and yet they married. And so he is 40 years old. He's still living at home. He has not found the person to settle down and raise a family with. And so his very concerned dad calls his most trusted servant and makes him swear by the God of heaven that he will not find somebody from the neighboring tribes around them as a wife for his son. So that's, that's him, Isaac. She can't be just any woman either. She has to meet a specific set of criteria. I want to say to you this morning that if any of you here are contemplating the kind of person that you'd like to marry, this message, I believe, will speak to you. But I believe it will also benefit us as parents of unmarried young adults, and it will benefit us all. So why don't we turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 24, and I will read verses 1 through 9. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him, concerning this matter. Whom you choose to marry will be your most critical decision, most critical decision that you ever make. The first grader, Timmy, he proudly announced to his parents one morning that he had asked the girl next door 
to marry him, and she had said yes. But a few hours later, he declared that the wedding was off. Well, what changed your mind, his father asked. I found out that she's just not my type, Timmy responded. And on top of that, she went and scribbled in my notebook. <laughs> Abraham makes his son, I'm sorry, makes his servant swear. In fact, he made him put his hand under his thigh and swear by the God of heaven and earth that he will not choose a wife for Isaac from the woman of the neighborhood. Now, I'm told that having someone place their hand under your thigh while making an oath was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. Abraham had it done to him twice. And Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob had Joseph do it to him on one occasion as well. Scholars claim that the word used for thigh is a code word for the private area of the loins. They claim that the word testify has its origin in that private area. And so this was a very big deal. This was a big deal. That oath had to be kept. Now why is it so important to Abraham that his son not marry a woman from the neighborhood? And why is Abraham so adamantly opposed to Eliezer taking Isaac back to the land from which God had called him? And why does he make Eliezer swear to bring his son a wife from among his own people, Abraham's own people? Was God against marrying someone from a different race? Absolutely not. Was God against marrying someone from a different faith? Absolutely. So a lot was riding on Isaac's shoulders. God had said to him, God had said to him in Genesis 17 verses 19 through 20, or he had said of him, says to Abraham, and he says this concerning Isaac, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time. There was a lot riding on Isaac. He was a child of promise. He was a child of the covenant, God's own covenant. Through Isaac, God was going to fulfill his promises to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations. So there was a lot riding on Isaac. But I want to say to you as young adults as well that there's a lot riding on you as well. There's a lot riding on you. We've brought you up in godly homes. We've instilled in you the fear of God. We have homeschooled you or sent you to Christian schools and colleges so that you might have a Christian worldview. Whom you marry will either help to reinforce that worldview or destroy it. I want to ask you, why miss the truth of what God said later to his people 
about marrying someone who doesn't share your Christian faith. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 to 4. God saying this to his people. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So there is a command here. Do not allow your sons and daughters to intermarry with others who do not serve the God you know and serve. Now, yes, this command was given to parents back at a time when parents were the ones who chose and determined who their um, children would marry. Now, the reason behind the command is this. You can't miss it. God says, for they will turn you away your sons and your daughters from following me to serve other gods. Now, I like what one student said this morning as we were studying in our young adults class, this very same notion. Randy had no idea I was preaching this, but her lesson uh, dealt with it. And one young man says, um, don't missionary date. And I had to ask him, unpack that for me. And so he declared, well, don't date somebody thinking that you will, in fact, convert them. Don't missionary date, he said. So the command here is, well, I'm sorry, the reason for the command is they will turn away your sons and daughters. In other words, rather than you thinking they'll convert them to your way, they will convert you to their way. As you look at scripture, there's a godly man, and he built his home in a city that was known for its wickedness. He and his wife raised two young adult daughters in that city. But he allowed them to be engaged to the men from that city who were indeed wicked. And God was going to destroy that city with burning sulfur because of their wickedness. Now, as I read these couple of verses, I want you to listen to three things. Listen to what the destroying angels say to, said to the man. Secondly, listen to what he said back, I'm sorry, listen to what he said to his sons-in-law, and then listen to how his sons-in-law responded to him. Three things, all right? Do you remember what those three things are? Tell, tell them back to me, please, just so I make sure that you know what you're listening for. What's the first one? Listen to what the destroying angel said to him. Secondly, what he said to his sons-in-law. Thirdly, what his sons-in-law said back to him. Wow, sharp students. All right. So, we, these are, this is the angels, these are the angels now speaking. We are about to destroy this place. Now, you know this place as Sodom and Gomorrah. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get up out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now, this is a question that I really want to ask Lot. How is it that you, a godly man, choose husbands for your daughters who treat your God and your Jewish faith as a joke. Just think about that for a moment. How do you go about choosing somebody for your daughter for whom your God and your faith are a joke? 
Now, this is what I want to ask you, young adults. How do you choose to date or marry someone who treats your God and your faith and your Christianity as a joke? Now, Karina rightly said this in class a couple of Sundays ago, and I did tell I was going to use her um, as an illustration this morning. Uh, she said in class, and I quote her, the, your Christian faith should always be the starting point for relationships. And I couldn't agree with her more. Your Christian faith should always be the starting point for relationships. That's her first point. Secondly, your marital search should never begin without prayer. Your marital search or your search for a marriage partner should never begin without prayer. I'm told that while on vacation in the Rockies, a flight attendant started to fall for the most eligible bachelor in that town. He owned a, 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 a cattle ranch and a beautiful log cabin. And so one week into her stay, he proposed to her because he liked her as well. But it had all happened so quickly that she thought that she would first return home and return back to her job to ponder whether or not she should say yes. Now, while in the airplane restroom one day, as in flight, of course, uh, she, well, there was some turbulence that started happening, and that turbulence triggered a lit sign which read, please return to your cabin. And she did. Not only to the airplane cabin, but to the cabin in the Rockies. That was her sign that God wanted for her, for her to marry this man with the log cabin. Now, God may very well give you a sign, but I believe that he will guide you to a marriage partner primarily through his response to your prayer as you ask him daily to either guide you to the right person or bring the right person to you. And so prayer is precisely what Abraham's servant does here on behalf of Isaac. Now let's listen to his specific prayer. We're going to continue reading in Genesis 24. It says, O Lord God of my master, now he does this before he starts up, O Lord God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So God is committed to guiding us once we are committed to his purpose. Once we are committed to walking with him, there's no question but that God will guide us. This is what Stephen J. Cole says. I quote him. He says, the longer I am a Christian, the more I believe that finding God's will isn't some formula. It's walking in constant fellowship with the Lord taking everything to him in prayer. When you know that prayer is behind your circumstances, then that which otherwise may seem to be a coincidence turns out to be 
No coincidence at all. Your steps are ordered by the Lord. When you walk with him and are committed to his purpose, he will work quietly behind the scenes of your life, leading you through potential hazards, not always leading you as you might have hoped, but still leading, putting all of the pieces together. The process becomes a beautiful blending of God's faithfulness and sovereignty and of our obedient trust in him. So we never start off seeking God's will for a marriage partner without beginning that process with prayer. But I believe that even more important than asking God to lead you to the right person is asking God to help you be the right person. Because I believe that you will only meet the right person when you are the right person. Sometimes there is work that God wants to do in us before we in fact meet the right person. So we always begin that process with prayer, asking for God to work on our hearts, make us the right person while we're waiting, and either lead us to the right person or bring the right person to us. Thirdly, you can trust God to provide the one who matches your list. I hope you have a list, young people, of the things that you're looking for. And trust God. Trust that God will provide a person for you who will, in fact, match your list. Because this young man had a list, even though it was on behalf of his master, Isaac. So let's read uh, the story as we continue. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulders. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden or a virgin whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. Now that is amazing to me. Because a camel does not just drink a bucket of water. A camel drinks a lot of water. And this woman is willing to draw water to, to water all of his camels. That's amazing to me. Great work ethic, you would say. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I want to say to you, young adults, this morning, tell God the kind of person that you would like him to provide for you. Tell him the kind of person you're looking for. Now, God already knows that, but he certainly does not mind you telling him that. Because I think as you tell him that, you become even more clarified in your own mind. Tell God that you want someone who loves him more than they love you. Can I say that again? Tell God that the person that you want to marry is someone who loves him more than they will love you. Tell God that you want someone who comes from a godly family because more, than, more likely than not, 
the godly training in that family will rub off on them as well. Tell God you want somebody who is attractive. That is important. Or beautiful. Very important. Tell God you want somebody who has a good work ethic. Tell God you want someone who has not slept around. It's a virgin. Tell God you want someone who is willing to leave their family to go with you so that together you might pursue God's purpose for you and then trust God to answer those specific requests. Fourthly and finally, receiving the family's blessing is a big deal. Now, seven years ago, our daughter, Abena, brought Jason home to meet us. And uh, this, was, this was, of course, our first time as parents um, in that particular boat. So we had many questions for them both, which, thankfully, they answered satisfactorily. But what really impressed me perhaps most about Jason was that sometime after that, he calls on the phone and he asks if he could drive three hours to meet with us because he wanted to ask us something in person rather than over the phone. And of course, what he came to ask us was our blessing in marrying our daughter. That really meant a lot, that he would drive three hours to ask us that when he obviously could have asked us on the phone. Now, Eliezer here is in Rebecca's home with his family, with her family, I'm sorry. And he tells her family that he is convinced that God has led him to their daughter. So they want him to stay for a few days because they don't just want to release their daughter into the hands of a stranger to take all the way back to meet his master. They want him to stay for a few days, but he is anxious to leave and take this young lady back to his master because he feels that this is the one that God has chosen for him. And so... Rebecca is now asked to decide. So let's look later on in the passage, verses 57 through 61. The family, they all say to, to um, Eliezer, let us call the young woman, Rebecca, and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and all his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. The family's blessing is essential. I believe that your family's blessing is more than your parents placing their stamp of approval on your wedding and on your marriage. I believe it is them releasing you with their and God's blessing on you and the life that you hope to build together. I believe it is them releasing you to be fruitful and to receive God's blessing and favor as you embark upon building your relationship and building your home and your family together. It is essential. It is essential to have your parents' blessing. 
Can I say that again? It is essential to have your parents' blessing on your relationship and on the person that you wish to marry. Marrying without your, blessing, without your parents' blessing sets you up for major conflict and friction in your family. Now, yes, it is your choice. Notice what the parents ask Rebecca. Will you go with this man? It is your choice. But it is their blessing that releases God's favor into your relationship. And so I want to say to you, don't leave home without it. The very last, the very last verse in that passage tells us this as we close. Then Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Notice that word, then. It is after that blessing has been pronounced. Then, with that blessing. So our bottom line this morning is that God wants you to marry someone who is his will for you. Don't marry outside of God's will for you. Dangerous. God wants you to marry someone who is his will for you. Three points in closing. I want to ask you to make Jesus your first love. Make Jesus your first love. There's a, a, a song, a very simple song. In fact, it's only, I think, a couple of lines, and you keep repeating it. Falling in love with Jesus is the best thing I've ever done. And they just keep re repeating that. Falling in love with Jesus is the best thing I've ever done. So I want to ask you to fall in love with Jesus before you fall in love with somebody else. If you are a godly person this morning, if you're anybody, fall in love with Jesus before you fall in love with anybody else. Let Jesus be your first love. Experience the love of Jesus before you experience the love of somebody else. Give Jesus your heart before you give it to someone else. Because you see, the love of Jesus is greater by far than any other love. Am I speaking to anybody who has found Jesus' love to be more precious than any other love? Make Jesus your first love. Secondly, pray daily for the person that you hope to marry one day. Don't just settle for the person that you think should, you should marry. Pray for the person that you really need to have. Make God your matchmaker. Ask God to guide you to the person that he has for you or to bring that person to you and that while you are waiting, he is working in you to make you the best version of yourself that you can give to that other person. Don't just wait for God to bring you the right person. Work on being the right person. Thirdly and finally, choose someone who will help you fulfill God's purpose for your life. I don't need to remind you that God has a purpose for your life. And that purpose is primary. The purpose that God has for your life should not be secondary to any other thing in life. There's a lot that is riding on you as young adults. You know, when I was growing up, at your age in the church, there are a lot of older folk in our church who invested a lot in us as young men and young women because they really wanted 
to see us fulfill God's purpose for our lives. And this is an area that they strongly emphasize for us. No wonder that I'm strongly emphasizing for you as well. Never marry anyone who will lead you, your heart away from God, away from God's church, and away from God's purpose for you. Never. I don't care how attractive or beautiful or promising that that person is, don't make the mistake of marrying someone who doesn't share your faith, of marrying someone for whom your God and your faith and your purity is a joke. Marry someone who loves God, who loves you, and who loves your family. Let us pray together. God, help each of us today, whether as young adults or as parents, maybe grandparents, to apply this message in the specific ways that you want us to. Pray especially this morning for our young adult men and women. God, they are the future of this church. We ask you, God, to especially watch over them, watch over their purity, watch over their choices. Have them not to allow the enemy to lead them astray so that, Lord, they damage the reputation and the good things that you're trying to accomplish in them. But Lord, we pray that they may su submit to your will and to your purpose, that they would allow you to continue to guide and direct this, their choices and their steps. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.